SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number 30 with guest Pablo Castro. Our guest today is Pablo Castro. Pablo is a technical lead in the SQL Server team at Microsoft. He's contributed to several areas of SQL Server and the .NET framework, ranging from SQL CLR integration to the TDS Client Server Protocol and the ADO.NET API. Pablo is currently involved with the development of the ADO.NET Entity Framework and also leads the Astoria project, looking at how to bring data and web technologies together. Before joining Microsoft, Pablo worked in various companies on a broad set of topics spanning from distributed inference systems for credit scoring or risk analysis to collaboration and group work applications. Welcome, Pablo. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? Good, good, good. uh, I gather at this stage you'd probably be fairly busy uh, in your team. Yeah, it's a a quite crazy time. We are... Uh, heads down working on both the entity framework and Astoria. We are in the final stages, so you know we don't want to miss anything. We want to make sure everything is just right. Uh, so we don't want to let go of any details. That's great. Well, what I get everybody to do first up is describe how how do you come to be where you are today, working in this job. Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, how did I came here? So uh, I started working at Microsoft about. Two, five and a half years ago or so, a little mm-hmm. bit more maybe. Um, before that, I used to run a small startup, and uh, I always loved databases. It's a topic that uh, really, you know, I'm really interested in. And uh, I had a few friends here at Microsoft, and uh, one day talking, they just say, why don't you just come, come to the SQL team? And I, I just couldn't reject the offer. So, so I came over, and um, I started working. I spent a lot of time in in the programming, low-level programming interfaces, like, uh, you know, the managed and native drivers for, for SQL Server. I spent some time uh, on the protocol, like I ended up making a few tweaks here and there in the protocol in the, in the SQL Server 2005 version. And uh, then I also spent a bunch of time in SQL CLR, like the integration between SQL Server and .NET. I got involved uh, in .NET at that point as well because of SQL CLR and .NET framework, also because of ADO.NET. So I was sitting yep. somewhere between the two worlds, like the database world and the and the .NET world. So, you know, when came when time came, it was about uh, we started to think about how do we move data access to the next level, and uh, yep. go from being a low level thing that you just used to exchange SQL statements with the database and you do everything else by hand, uh, to see how we can do better for our developers and for the evolving needs out there. And uh, so that's how, like. Uh, out of sheer thinking of a lot of people across the SQL building and the uh, .NET buildings. Um, yeah. I started to uh, come up all of these things around Link and the entity framework, and uh, so I ended up involved heavily on those things. And um, 
sort of it grew into me, I guess. Like I, I was just sitting there and uh, along with this other, all these other people, and all of the time we were all the the entity framework team, and uh, also Link was all over the place. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, entity framework grew a lot, became sort of a big thing both uh, inside the company and I guess outside. It's becoming uh, increasingly known out there, and um, the entity data model became a very important thing. So when the entity mo- entity data model uh, became such central piece of our strategy for data. We were looking at the web. Like I was personally very interested in sort of how this ties up to the web and how we can bring this into the web. Not just as a thing to render web pages, but more in general, how do we enable sort of data sharing between systems and people and system to system sharing as well on the web? And yeah. there was an opportunity for data services. So I ended up uh, heavily involved on in the Astoria project, the data services project, which is where I'm spending most of my time right now. Yeah. Yeah, I must admit, I think the first time I came across you, it was probably in ADO.net, and uh, eventually I do remember uh, the software design review where we, one of the ones, uh, I think back in about 2003, where we first looked at what ended up becoming Link, and uh, I certainly remember it being uh, an interesting lot of expressions around the room as people yeah. were having a look at it. The... Um, yeah. What I suppose what we should really do, a lot of the uh, developers have been fairly much across some of this, uh, but maybe the DBA folk haven't quite so much got their head around it yet, and they'll see a lot of this coming up at the SQL launch events. But perhaps if we just start maybe with Link and work our way there, just in terms of definitions, how you see it fitting in, and uh, and so on from there. Okay. Uh, it sounds great. So to... Like, to summarize Link in a few words, um, Link by itself and in isolation, which is something that uh, typically when you look at Link, you need to look at the bigger picture. But let's start with yeah. Link itself for a second. Link is, it just stands for Language Integrated Query. And what it means is that uh, the language folks here at Microsoft uh, worked together with several of the folks here in the data team and uh, came up with this set of extensions to the language. So so that you can write queries right there in your programming language, in Visual Basic or in C Sharp. Uh, the idea is not to just write, it's not to create a gateway that you write a statement and it goes to a database and that's it. The idea is actually quite different. It's to build query uh, constructs and query expressions into the language itself as a way of programming in, in the most general sense. So whenever you're dealing with data, be it data memory or be it XML or objects or, or or certainly data in, in database tables. In all of these cases, you use the same same style and the same constructs to formulate those queries and manipulate data in general. So uh, that's a big deal because it goes well beyond databases. It's just about data, how, how you interact with data, and how how can you use set-based constructs that have proven to be so effective at the database level and bring them into the more general programming model uh, in in mainstream programming languages, just uh, like you know C Sharp and Visual Basic. Yeah. Um, so all that said, Link in itself is just that. It's not that it's not a big deal, but it's bounded to query formulation which within your programming language plus a nice and well, very nicely designed framework to make it work across many data sources, both the ones that we ship in the box, like objects and XML and tables, and also uh, a way of, for third parties to bring their data into the picture. Now, if you look at how it works in practice, very rarely you have link in isolation. You also uh, you, you use some framework to, to make things work and to tie, tie up your environment with the data source. Uh, like, for example, if you're using a database, 
uh, with link, you use like link to SQL or link to entities or one of, of these frameworks that bring uh, a lot more than link the query formulation. They also bring up uh, change management, so you can bring objects and represent your data as objects in memory, and then you can manipulate them and then push the changes back to the database. And you know these things typically automatically take care of tracking the changes, generating the proper SQL statements, interacting with the database, and so on. Uh, so uh, overall, whenever you talk about, hey, I'm using link for this project, typically means more than link as in the language integrated feature. It means more like I'm using some link-enabled framework to interact with my data source. Um, uh, so the reason why I bring this up is because you know you can see a world where some like a, some set of developers will use say link in memory, link to objects we call it sometimes, and um, that has nothing really to do with databases at all. It's just an in-memory technology. It's a nicer way of dealing and finding dealing with data, finding data, and so on. Now, when it comes to databases, then uh, link becomes. Uh, uh, a couple of things becomes a way of formulating queries that in the end become database queries. So they're translated by some magic yeah. machinery in the middle, and they become dynamic SQL statements. And then uh, typically what happens in the way back is you materialize objects out of your records, and these objects are regular .NET objects, which makes it very natural for developers to work with it. And then they make changes to them, and we track the changes so we know what you changed such that when you say, I'm done making changes, make them persistent, we can go back to a database and, again, uh, use SQL statements, like in this case, the uh, ML statements, to push the changes back to the database system. Yeah. Um, so with this picture in mind, uh, and now, now let me come back to your question about link and uh, sort of what is the DBA's take on it. Yeah. Um, so w there are a couple of aspects that you, you can easily uh, sort of highlight in what I just described. First is, uh, what I say is basically link, and we have to remember this, link is a query formulation sort of technology or, or mechanism. What that means is whenever you're using link as a way of expressing queries, typically uh, you will be generating SQL statements on the other end. And, um, you know, in some environments, generating dynamic SQL is the right thing, and I've seen you know, plenty of customers that that's sort of their default path and they don't use a, like store procedures or table-valued functions or anything. Yeah. And in that case, link will be like a link as a way of writing queries will be a very natural progression of what they have today. Uh, on the other hand, there is uh, a number of environments where by policy, because of performance or security considerations or other aspects, they only have a, they have a fixed API to a database that is typically constructed using store procedures. And um, the question there is, so if you have all the store procedures, what, what is there in link? If I am a, a DBA and I, I want to keep my, my, uh, my uh, sort of regulations and, and sort of style of maintaining my databases in store procedures, can I enable my developers to still use some of these new technologies to write their apps and make, be more productive without disrupting the database operation? And um, so while link itself, you know, it's a query formulation mechanism, so if you take out query, there isn't much, much substance there. The frameworks do support uh, uh, store procedures and things like that. Like, for example, both link to SQL and link to uh, entities uh, have the ability to bind to store procedures such that when you invoke it, you don't write a link query. You just write a function call, and we will give you a nice .NET wrapper around it uh, so you don't have to build a command object or anything manually. But then on the way back, you, you get full .NET objects. So we still go through the same materialization infrastructure. That means, first, that you, you get objects back, which are easy to deal with in the Visual Studio environment. 
Second, it also means that we can still do all of the change tracking and automatic uh, update management for you. So there's still like, quite a bit of substance there, even if you're not you know, using language integrated query. You can still use link to uh, SQL and link to entities uh, in, in your environment. And the same thing applies to the update path. By default, we'll generate dynamic SQL statements for you know, updating certain deletes and so on. But we can also configure either of the frameworks that we're shipping to bind to store procedures for each one of the side-effecting operations. And uh, the frameworks will just call those functions instead of generating SQL on the flight. Yeah. Uh, that gives you a good balance where uh, if, if the DBA needs to, like it's very common, especially on larger databases where DBA needs very precise control of how you get into the database and what you do with it, uh, you still get that, and at the same time, developers get this nicer sort of higher-level experience on dealing with data. I, su I suppose the question that really tends to always come up, uh, as soon as you have DBAs involved, by default that tends to mean you have larger databases in, in most cases. The, uh, I suppose the first question really have to address is the performance one. Mm -hmm. And just your feelings on if we are using a technology like Link to SQL mm -hmm. as, as to uh, your feelings as to where that takes us performance-wise. Because what sort of intrigued me, uh, when I had a look at, uh, say, Scott Guthrie's uh, video he put up when he first uh, showed a lot of this, um, mm -hmm. What he did is he said, look, if you're concerned about the, the quality of the code generated, you can just put a breakpoint here, open up a window and have a look at the code. And he yep. stopped, he opened it up, and he said, you know, look at that. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, that's horrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, funny, the funny thing is that most developers that I've, I've talked to watch that same video and they look and they think, oh, my God, I'm glad I didn't have to write that sequel but my reaction was nobody should write that sequel because it was it, it really looked pretty ordinary. Now I think the main thing was that when I looked at it, it had things like instead of selecting from the tables involved, it always tended to do subselects and yeah. thing, things like when it followed a referential integrity path, it, it didn't uh, or a foreign key, it tended to always do left outer joins, for example, rather than inner joins and so on and so on. And so I'm just sort of wondering about your whole feeling about what that means performance-wise. Okay. So let me, I'll give you the answer in two parts. Uh, first, I'll give you a little bit of a philosophical tack, and then I'll get more practical. <laughs> uh, so I think, in principle, there's a trade-off that you make every time you go for abstractions, right? So... Uh, the idea is that so the reason for all of these frameworks that if you look at any application, old or new, or with the, or with these technologies or without these technologies and so on, they all follow a very similar layering, and uh, they most most of them tend to have some form of a data access layer, some form of a set of business objects, and then some presentation uh, infrastructure. Be either be like presentation for humans or presentations as web services for the next computer down in the chain or so on, and. Um, so what we try to do with these frameworks is avoid, is help people uh, not having to uh, go do all of this work of creating a data access layer and creating sort of the bottom parts of, of a business object layer and things like that. Uh, so we're trying to abstract things out. Yeah. Of course, what, the first thing you pay for getting things abstracted out is perf. And um, so the question is not so much whether this is going to cost some performance, which it will, certainly. I mean, I'll get into the details later. We're working yeah. on it. But uh, these things very rarely are going to go faster than the previous thing. Yeah. Um, 
but the question is, what is the appropriate trade-off between the price that you're going to pay for this thing and how much uh, productivity and, and maintenance enhancements you get out of it? Uh, of course, if I tell you, yeah, we're, we're just an order of magnitude slower, that's not going to be a great story for adoption. Uh, but if assuming that performance is within a reasonable uh, within a reasonable difference from the underlying stack, then uh, trade-offs start to work, and uh, it, it makes sense to take a to make an investment in a little bit of perf to get back all of this productivity and maintainability enhancements. Yeah. Uh, so that's sort of a more philosophical piece. Getting back to sort of more practical arguments. Uh, so how is the system layered in practice? So we have the ADO.NET layer that has more or less was shipped in the .NET 2.0 version of the framework, where we had like, you know, SQL, in the case of SQL Server, we had SQL command and SQL connection and all those things. Yeah. Those things are as close as the metal as they, as they get. It, you know, some, some implementations are wrappers on top of native APIs. In the case of the SQL client provider, even the TDS parser is written in managed code. So this thing is, goes straight to the server. There is no fastest path to the server. Yeah. So, of course, like now we build all of these frameworks, and we build them on top of this layer. So whatever we do, we can certainly not beat them because we're working on top of them. Yeah. Uh, so the, the two main efforts that we make are around, first, about minimizing the overhead that we are putting on top, and second, on leveraging opportunities for things that developers wouldn't typically do when using the lower layers. Like, we're more careful with using prepare commands, and I'll get back to this in a second. Uh, we look at the SQL that we generate a lot. Uh, again, uh, I'll get back to this. And, uh, you know, a few other things that uh, may help, at least if, uh, for the entry-level developer that may not be aware of best practices of things like that, we will at least adopt those best practices automatically for them. Yeah. Um, so now getting to concrete bits, um, so there are a few aspects. One is, as you mentioned, the kind of SQL we generate. You know, machines are not, they tend to be dumb for many of these things. And uh, <laughs> we we do teach these things a lot of tricks. Like, uh, if you look at these stacks, uh, I'm going to pick on the entities one just because uh, I'd uh, be more involved on, on the design of the thing. Um, so we do heavy uh, query sort of post-processing and um, and we have a whole transformation phase that tries to eliminate things like redundant joins and uh, unnecessary projections. Also, nested join elimination as, as, or nested query elimination, as you said before, is an issue, and uh, we try to eliminate them as much as possible. But uh, there is always some weirdness that uh, stays here or there. And um, so the two things to think about when you look at that is first, uh, sure, like nested joins or nested queries, which is what you mentioned, is also my favorite. And it's mostly an artifact of how the implementation does the translation. Uh, and we eliminate a lot of them. But the other thing is we also, I mean, I sit like two floors down from the query optimizer guys yeah. in SQL. So we actually talk a lot. Right? And we exchange these things, and we go like, hey, we're generating this class of queries, or this is pattern, how about this? Is it going to go well? Is it going to be a disaster? And uh, so we have a very good flow with, with, between teams, and uh, we're very close. So, um, so that helps a lot. Like some queries are ugly looking, but they don't actually generate bad plans. Yeah. Like, for example, there is a whole class of nested subqueries that can be fairly efficiently sort of pulled up and turned into regular things. Um, so there is a balance there between, like, there is a point where optimization is going more for aesthetics than, from, than for real efficiency, and those we don't do because, you know, they're expensive and we don't want to get there. Uh, the, the other aspect is um, about net overhead. 
So net overhead, you know, in the end, we get a query formulated either using link, which becomes a link expression, or using entity SQL, which is a textual you know, query language for, for the entity data model. And we have to go from there. Uh, you know, we have these heavy mapping layers that allows you to completely transform your model and uh, all of these type system differences and such. So we have to translate one to the other, and those things take time. And uh, also, this is a transformation process, which means it's very CPU bound. Uh, so we're going to have a lot noticed, of CPU doing that. I notice also that in the latest version of SQL Server with 2008 coming, uh, there's again a further move to uh, even up the type systems a bit. Uh, with are, uh, yeah. the date time two and uh, some of these things, yeah. Yes, yes, we're trying to. Yeah, the closer we can get on type systems, the better, right? So yes, you're right. We are. We have ta more types that are compatible between, uh, you know, our overall data platform. If you look at how .NET does types and how SQL does types, they are converging, and we're careful. And now we we don't introduce types that are not sort of present across the board, or at least we have a plan for making them present across yeah. the board. Which before, you know. Uh, these things these were smaller products, grew, they grew up out of different um, sort of historical paths, and they had to deal with their own backwards compatibility challenges, so it was hard to get the core type system aligned. But as we yeah. move forward, we're definitely trying to do it, make them aligned. With, with, the, query, with the query engine guys, uh, mm -hmm. are they making any changes to better accommodate the type of queries being generated by Link? Uh, so in, um, in the... Like we, what we do regularly is the way the query optimizer team and many of the queries of the teams in SQL work is they have a lot of what they have, they have play, like playbacks, right? They have, uh, basically they record, uh, workloads from, from real world applications and, uh, they use them to tune the optimizer and various other pieces of the database. So we have a certain set of patterns that they can feed into their sort of overall equation to, for consideration. Yeah. So, so, uh, we have, like, even today, we have looked at many of these, particularly around, uh, we do, in the end, we, uh, are the systems that the EDM builds end up looking very hierarchical, and mm -hmm. clearly databases are, well, not hierarchical. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, that results in a lot of outer, outer joins, as you, as you mentioned before, and methods yeah. of queries. So, they have looked at some of that, and we continuously look at how we can, uh, tune the database to be a better server for this class of, of application, which is, uh, somewhat new, particularly in our platform, this sort of whole heavy objects uh, on top of the database thing. There are some uh, option relational mappers that have been there for a lot of years, some of them like really, really good, but I'm not sure if they have reached the mainstream point. Uh, so I think uh, by helping on the database, as you say, we can really, really sort of help push that point forward. Yeah. So, yeah, we're doing some, and uh, I think we'll do much more as, as we move forward and as these frameworks become more popular. Yeah. That's good. So, in summary, I mean, so Link is is a language enhancement, basically, and I think that's a, an important message is, is a lot of people see it as just Link to SQL, but that's right, it's not. It, it's got yeah. a wider variety of things. In fact, I find Link to XML quite quite a useful one. Oh, the, um, here. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> Link to XML just changed my life. Like, I, you know, I do quite a bit of XML these days because of all of this Astoria thing and yeah. stuff. And Link to XML is so nice. Yeah. I can't believe how nice this API is. And I, I had nothing to do with it. I, I just consume it. But it's just perfect. I, I think it's, uh, people uh, don't look at it hard enough because everybody gets distracted with the Link to SQL and Link to yeah. these things. Yeah, I think the it's it's got a, a sort of an elegance to it, 
which uh, I must admit X-Query and things like that that have come out of committees just don't seem to quite have. <laughs> so, that's, that's, yeah, that's good. So I think, yeah, with, um, with yeah, Link, as I said, Link as a language enhancement is kind of neat, and it's important for them to realise as well that people will tend to write their own providers. I had a colleague, Paul Stovell, who was sort of writing a Link provider. He was trying to do a caching provider and so on. But that people will find lots and lots and lots of different Link providers will come out over time. Uh, yep. They may or may not be in any way directly related to a database. One one philosophical question I've got for you. Mm-hmm. I often often see people describing that part of the reason they wanted to do the link thing was to sort of come up with constructions in the language uh, where and and some people say, look, I just didn't want to learn T SQL. I mean that that's one of the arguments. But mm-hmm. why did they pick keywords which were SQL like keywords? rather than maybe more generic object-related terms? I think it was a trade-off of, like, so here's a little bit of history. Like, So in the very early days of, of Link, it wasn't even called Link. It was like yeah. three code names before or something. Uh, we, we used to have these um, sequence operators, which are still there. Like, you know, when you can say dot where and put like a lambda expression and then dot select and put a la- another lambda expression and so yeah. on. And that, that was the only thing that there was. Like, there was no nice comprehension syntax or anything. Mm. And um, we actually got a lot of pushback. Like, we, uh, the message that we got was, an, uh, like, I was sitting in the SDR. I was part of, this was more of a, a C-sharp uh, thing, like C-sharp SDR, and I was yeah. watching it for, like, for a, from outside to some extent. And, um, like, people were, like, they really liked the idea and the overall sort of thinking of integrating these two things much more closely, like the data world and the programming world. But there was quite a bit of resistance about using this whole sequence operators thing. I actually found it surprising. You never know. You do these SDRs to get outside <laughs> uh, perspective because sometimes you are, you're, you're sort of too stuck in your own, on your own ideas, right? Yeah. That's why we do these SDRs, to make sure that we're not being sort of blindfolded on, on single set of ideas and stuck there. So we got a very clear message that uh, folks expected uh, uh, more like a query formulation con- uh, con- set of, like a uh, syntax for query formulation, so to speak. Mm. Um, so I think that's what, uh, the, that's what got uh, some of the folks in the C-sharp design team to think about a, a, a comprehension syntax in addition to the underlying uh, sort of features in the language that enable this. Uh, also, uh, at the same time, the Visual Basic folks were looking into the space as well, and they had been playing with a more integrated SQL experience. And they, uh, at that time, or very shortly after, they had a, um, a little SQL language integrated into VB, which in fact had, at first, at very first, I don't think this never made it public, but it had the select uh, part first, like the projection piece first. Yes, I, I do do recall that, and uh, I remember... Uh the guys coming up and saying, "Look, would you, how would you feel if the if the from was first and so on?" So yeah, yeah. The I think one of the things I suppose the one of the driving things as well is is always been that they say that I think it's over ninety percent of applications are data related in some way. Yet it's always yeah. been kind of odd that data is an add-on library to the language when nearly every application we build is data related. The so yeah. I think it always did seem kind of separate and. And it always sort of struck me that I never quite got the same productivity as I did with uh, a language that really had uh, data embedded in the language in the first place. 
Uh, if if I look at the sort of things I could do with languages like Progress and some of the older 4GLs, but where the mm-hmm. the entire language was a, a construction uh, yeah. that, that understood data, so uh, there was always a data context or a database context in the language, and I could just simply write a statement that instead of using words like select, I could just say for each whatever yeah. in whatever, and, and the language understood what I meant. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, one of the challenges with those is, uh, like, there are a very broad range of those, right, that range from, like, embedded SQL type of things, like, you know, yeah. Pro-C or Pro-Cobalt or embedded SQL in the Microsoft side, uh, all the way to languages that have been always like that, like any X-based language, like, say, Fox yeah. Pro or something like that, where the database is just there, it's up in the air, right? Yeah. And works, actually, those things tend to be pretty fast and all, right? Yes. Uh, I think one of the problems with these things is it's very hard to make them, to modernize them if, if you happen to have a, a, a requirements that push you in that direction. Like, you mm-hmm. can very well have an application that has its whole sort of lifetime, yeah, build, for example, a two-tier application and do its job just fine. Yeah. But if for, for whatever reason you're pushed into a three-tier system, for example, writing the client tier using this technology is actually almost unviable, or it's either very hard or just not possible. Right, because even like in things like FoxPro, where we ended up adding a lot of technology, like from COM to .NET integration and such, in the end, if you if somebody takes all of the SQL integration out of the language, then the value of the language goes down very quickly. Yes. Uh, so uh, those things could work great when you have sort of direct, I'm going to call it line of sight to the database. But once you go into multi-tier systems, or once your client and your servers uh, have the whole web in between, then those things don't quite work very well. On the other hand, this whole link approach to things, I think the nice job that the language guys did was to separate uh, the source from the formulation. So now what they're saying is, look, this is how you write queries in, in this language, regardless of your target. And then you go plug in a target. And your target could be a database if you happen to be sitting in the middle tier or if you have a two-tier application. Or it could be your middle tier if you happen to be in a third tier and you're talking to your server or something. So it works very well even in in these sort of different topologies of applications that sometimes we choose to use or sometimes we are pushed into using. Yeah, that's great. Well, listen, that's probably a good point to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the Entity Framework and data services. Sounds great. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular... The first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. So welcome back from the break. Um, so have you been living in and around uh, Seattle area for a fair while, or well, is there a life outside SQL Server? Hey, uh, no, actually, I've been here for, for the whole five years, that, or five and a half years I've been in SQL, but before that I actually used to live like in South America, in Argentina. So mm-hmm. uh, it's been quite a change uh, from there to here. Yeah, and so um, weather, you've got used to? The- yeah, I think there's a lot of, of uh, sort of 
of crazy stories about the weather here and, you know, that it rains all the time. And, you know, it rains a little bit, but it's not, it's really not that bad at all. Like, I come from a place, like, I come from Buenos Aires, so it's pretty hot, and uh, it doesn't really rain. And it's not like I came here and it was the end of the world. It's actually not bad at all. <laughs> and uh, you get a good mix. In summer, you know, it's nice. You can go to lakes and stuff. And in winter, actually, you get, you drive 45 minutes and there's a skiing place. And, uh, yeah. in fact, we do things like sometimes we go with the whole Astoria team. Uh, like, if you check out the blogs, like, you can see that we went there, like, last week or something with the whole team. We took a day mm-hmm. off and we went there, uh, spent the day in slope. So you can just say, look, I'm going to stop working at 4 or something and go skiing at night and things like that. So it's a good yeah. – actually, it works out pretty well. That's outrageously good. So do you have uh, – apart from this, which is obviously a passion, mm-hmm. are there any non-computing passions or anything like that that you have? <laughs> Very few. Like, uh, you know, lately I haven't had a lot of time. Uh, no. <laughs> so I actually so – I like computers a lot, and I, I do it both mm-hmm. as a job and also as a sort of as something that I would do even if I weren't getting paid for. Uh, yes, that's what uh, most of us say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I, I actually enjoy it a lot. I read a lot about stuff and uh, especially papers and sort of what the academy is doing and things like that. Um, yeah. I also so yeah like uh, since I moved here I got into snowboarding. I love it and I spend a lot of time doing it as much as I can in winter. Uh, I have a kid which I also spend a lot of time with. Good. And, uh, lately, I've gotten into biology for a number of crazy reasons. So I've been reading a lot wow. about sort of cellular biology and things. Don't really, I, I, I don't really understand yet, but I'm getting, I'm <laughs> getting good. to it slowly. Yeah, the things you learn slowly. In fact, one of the things uh, I've started doing over the last few uh, month or two is I've been starting to learn Mandarin. Uh, mm-hmm. So wow. uh, and uh, realizing just how hard that is. But uh, yeah, it must was. Be uh, <laughs> it's amazing, but the the thing that I was impressed, I, I went and did a uh, a summer immersion course, which is like a really really fast course, mm-hmm. and uh, I was surprising. Uh, I went and saw Ang Lee's new movie, uh, Lust Caution, and I was surprised how many things I understood. So uh, I don't know, maybe it is possible. I, I'm, uh-huh. I've, I've, I'm uh, <laughs> and there's uh, there's another podcast. There's a podcast called Chinese Pod. Uh-huh. which I'd give a shout-out to people to have a look at. And uh, every day, Ken and Jenny give me a little bit of Mandarin for about 10 <laughs> minutes. It's, uh, it's, it's really good, so I'm enjoying that. But anyway, look, so the other things uh, we need to have a look at, so Entity Framework is the next layer in this whole thing, and I suppose the quick um, helicopter view as to what is it, why does it matter? Uh, the Entity Framework is... Um if you look at, like, first look, it, could, it looks like an object relational mapper. And, uh, you know, folks in the team would get mad at me if I just say it's that, but it's a lot of it. <laughs> uh, but I think why it matters is more important at this point. Uh, so the entity framework is um, it's a piece of technology that brings the entity data model, which is an entity relation model, uh, yeah. uh, into the picture, into mainstream development uh, in the .NET environment. Um, so w- the idea of the entity framework is imagine you can paint a picture of your data using a conceptual model. Like, forget about the constraints of your sort of rows and columns on the database or, or you know, uh, constraints about typing and, and expressiveness and so on. And instead, you want to simply say what the data that you want to work with should look like. And uh, so then, once you have, and, and also think of that model as a very expressive high-level model. And now, what you can think of is, if you had data expressed in that model and the model was reached from the metadata perspective, so it was very well described, 
then you could layer a lot of services on top of it that range from you know synchronization to reporting to data services like to expose a service and all of all of those things like keeping in mind the sort of the semantics or at least some of the semantics of what you want to expose uh, semantics can be expressed in terms of, for example, if a relationships that is like inheritance or in, the, in terms of how things are associated with each other and things like that. Um, so if you have something like this, then, for example, building a report will be substantially easier because you will talk about in terms of your business objects and how they relate to each other and what they mean to each other instead of sort of how rows and tables happen to stitch up together to build a sort of a reasonable amount of information. Yeah. So, yeah, I, th I, th I think this is the sleeping giant. This one, I, I, I really think the uh, the entity framework is the one that people real really want to want to program against, rather than the lower level. Uh, I, as I said, I see a lot of very simple examples for link to SQL, mm -hmm. but link to SQL gives you kind of a one to one mapping to the tables and yeah. exposes those. Where I think the nice thing, the example I did uh, in the launch events, we were talking about many-to-many -many relationships. And so if we had a thing like uh, passengers and flights in an airline, there'd typically be a joining table like a flight manifest or a passenger flights or something. Mm -hmm. But the nice thing is that the Entity Framework allows us to program that passengers have a flights collection and flights have a passengers collection yeah. and so on. So, yeah, different concepts to the underlying structure. Yeah, yeah exactly. And um, sort of looking at the, a somewhat bigger picture, um, so the entity framework, what it does in the end is, as you said, it like pushes the, the abstraction up. And the way it does it is it uh, supports the EDM as a first-class construct. And it's not just like you design your schema using the EDM and you stick it on the wall and you sort of you watch it there. It's more like the EDM becomes your executable model because the, sort of the entity framework is a runtime that can really sort of interpret an EDM schema and uh, make it executable, make it make it what what your, the rest of the application uses to get to your data. And of course, like since the databases itself to themselves today are, uh, you know, for the most part, relational databases, we include in the entity framework of like a fairly powerful mapping engine that allows you to take relational models and expose them using the, using EDM terms. And uh, this is a first step. Uh, like what, the way we envision this is that we will have a ways of bringing data into EDM terms, like the entity framework does, and then we can create a number of services cross-cutting across all of the schemas that follow the like the, use the EDM. So you can imagine sort of uh, our reporting infrastructure or our synchronization infrastructure moving into this direction, and you, you can imagine synchronizing whole customers, whatever your means for your business, instead of synchronizing some record or set of records that happen to be related together somehow. Uh, yeah. So I think that's, that's a key aspect. There are technological advancements that are inter interesting in themselves, but I think the key aspect is sort of the start of this uh, broad data platform move and uh, this being one of the initial building blocks for it. Yeah. Now, one of the terms that often comes up in and around this is entity SQL. Mm -hmm. and perhaps explaining where that fits in? Uh, so the EDM or the entity data model is, well, it's a data model which has its own constructs. And um, so if you want to fully exploit the data model, uh, you usually need a query language that goes with it, you know, just like, um, like yeah. the relational model has SQL or the XML uh, model has things such as XQuery and such. Uh, yeah. So what we do is, on one hand, like traditional, say, anti-SQL, so to speak, didn't have enough expressiveness for what we want, for, for what we needed. But on the other hand, SQL is such a well-known thing that we didn't want to deviate from it arbitrarily. So what we chose to do is we took 
uh, traditional SQL, and we added just enough to introduce uh, uh, or to support the constructs that are introduced by the EDM. Like, to give you two examples, um, like, for example, in EDM, I mean, you can say select, you know, uh, iteration variable from table as iteration variable, which is a regular SQL query, and it's also an entity SQL query. But also, yeah. there are questions like, what if you have, you know, an inheritance hierarchy, and uh, you have instances of different subtypes of an inheritance hierarchy in a given container, and you only want the instances of a given point in the, in the hierarchy, like you want to do an is a check. Well, that concept... Yeah, I was going to say, maybe we should explain just as a concrete example mm -hmm. of an inheritance hierarchy. Mm -hmm. so let's I'm say, just thinking for the, the non-developers. Yep. Yeah, so let's say you have, um, you have a hierarchy that says, I have contacts, and a subtype of contact is employee, and another subtype of contact is customer. And uh, they have some in common, like all of them have a name and an address and a phone number, but then the contacts have, uh, you know, whatever specific information like first name and last name, and uh, customers have a customer name and a sales, an assigned uh, salesperson and, you know, a few other uh, customer-specific things. So they share some basic state, and sometimes you want to treat them uniformly. Like you may want to have a list of all of your, uh, all of the pe persons you know about. So you want to say, give me all of the per people, regardless of their actual details nature. But sometimes you want to say, give me all of this container of people, of persons, uh, entities, give me those that are customers, or only give me those that are uh, employees, for example. Maybe I have my HR application where I only want employee information. So now, how do you ask those questions in SQL? There is no column that says, at least not at the entity SQL level, that says this is an employee or this is a, a customer. You don't want a column. It would be weird to use that, right? A more natural thing, yeah. if you think in object-oriented terms, is to have an is a check, where you say, give me all of the rows where the row is of type person or employee or customer. So we yeah. introduced a few constructs into SQL such that we can express those things. And the uh, yeah. same thing with navigation. Uh, while in SQL, it's, you know, uh, systems that are heavily designed around um, relationships tend to be very heavy on joins uh, because you have to jump across tables to go find information you want. Uh, in yeah. EDM, those are actually modeled as, um, as um, associations. Um, and associations mm. are, uh, are more, a more explicit way of tying up things together. So there are uh, entity SQL constructs that allows you to say things like, if you want to say, give me all of the sales orders for this customer, you would typically write like a join that uh, sort of selects the orders and then selects the customer and finds the customer by some criteria and then ties up, you know, the ID of the customer to the ID of the, to the foreign key of the customer in the order table. Uh, in, entity, in Entity SQL, you can say something like, given this customer, give me all the orders. You can say, navigate, see for a customer, comma, orders for the orders collection. And uh, we will, yeah. of course, under the covers do a join. But the important thing is, from the query formulation perspective, it looks a lot like, an like a navigation or an association traversal between these two things. So it's a much yeah. more natural way of formulating a query. I suppose one of the, the points to make is that this mapping lives at the application level. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I suppose one of the immediate reactions is, well, couldn't I do most of that with uh, building different views and so on in the database? Uh, so there are two aspects to this. So I guess, so to some extent, yes, you could build views. The, there, the two aspects are, first, is you can only be, build so many views and make it practical to manage them. Like, uh, if you have a lot of applications, which tends to happen on, on, as databases become more and more central to an enterprise or an organization in general, 
um, those applications, uh, those databases, sorry, tend to be the ones that have more applications growing around them, so to speak. So uh, what becomes tricky is to is if you have to create a custom set of views for every one of these applications. And if you don't create custom views, then you could say, well, you have to deal with what you have. Like, uh, I'll give you a standard set of views, and you have to go from there. But that means that applications will implicitly build those perspectives into the data in a maybe ad hoc manner, right? People, like developers, will just tend to wrap this into something that makes sense for their app. So now yeah. you still have this reshaping, but you have it implicitly, so it's very hard to manage. Or you have to manage the complexity of having a ton of views on the database. And the other aspect is um, views don't, I mean, views are within the closure of, of the databases, right? So they um, cannot express more than the underlying queries. That means that you can use views to maybe drop columns or add, uh, join tables together or things like that, but you cannot use views to model, you know, hierarchical things or to model containment or to model, um, you know, inheritance or constructs that are outside of the uh, data model of the database. Uh, so that's, and that's one of the things we do in the, in the entity framework is we give you more constructs like, you know, inheritance associations, many-to-many -many associations and things like that. Um, so these two things combined make a strong case for saying, look, you can still have a set of views in the database and maybe we go through views if you want to protect the underlying tables and the entity framework supports that. But in the end, every application will need uh, a different perspective on the database and we're acknowledging that and what we're doing is we're creating infrastructure such that it is easy and convenient both from, for the, from the DBA perspective and from the developer's perspective to create these different perspectives on the database without, um, without causing a bunch of noise in the database and without uh, creating some implicit artifacts that then is very hard to manage. I, I suppose one of the other points that's usually made is that the, uh, the database itself in most large organizations tends to outlive the applications, yeah, uh, absolutely. yeah sub yes. substantially. I suppose the the only question that then comes up is that if uh, one of the things I quite like about the mapping layer also is that it becomes a declarative way of uh, spelling out all those relationships and things, which mm -hmm. is is kind of nice because otherwise people formulating queries uh, have to remember maybe to put things in where clauses or whatever, and yeah. sometimes forget. So uh, it's uh, being able to spell out how that works in a declarative way is kind of a good thing. The the one concern I have with that, though, is that if we've then got all of these mapping files which are outside the database, mm -hmm. doesn't that then make it harder for people to refactor the database? Oh, you mean to, to reflect the whatever changes they need or to, ref, to keep yeah. the changes yeah. in the database? Yeah, because um, where everything was done with uh, stored procedures and views and is contained within the database, mm -hmm. then if I go to make a change, I, I know the surface area of what I need to touch to do the refactoring work. Mm -hmm. If if the mapping layers live outside that, doesn't that sort of run the risk that we're then, sim similar to what you see in many organizations today where they have lots and lots of access applications yep. hitting the main database and they're not, they're not game to change the main database because they don't know what they're going to break? Yeah, but I, I think uh, this, I don't think this changes the nature of the problem a lot. Like, in principle, mm -hmm. the database has a public interface and uh, sometimes that public interface is, are the tables themselves and sometimes it's a set of store procedures or views layered on top of them. So whatever yeah. uh, entity models and mappings you use, you create for your applications, we layer on top of that API. Just like regular applications will have an implicit model 
which could be no model at all, that will also depend on that interface. So in that sense, I think one way or the other, like you, you have to, you have the same bar from the compatibility perspective at the database level, because like uh, if if you look at an application that doesn't do doesn't use this conceptual uh, modeling technology, uh, how, how do you avoid breaking the application? Well. When you use the data, when you make a change to the database, you make it such that it doesn't break the public interface. So maybe you substitute a table with a view with instead of triggers, or if you have a store procedure, you do some maneuvering inside the store procedure so like underlying changes don't show up and things like that. Yeah. And in the end, you will have to keep doing the same thing. Uh, like I don't think that's fundamentally different. The one other benefit is that uh, if you have proper uh, model management, which is something we're still working in, and uh, we have. The artifacts as loose files right now, which allows some flexibility, but not. Yeah, mm. we're, we're working on making it better. Uh, you could imagine a world where you say, "Look, this change, I just cannot make it in the database without breaking, breaking the contract." But what I could do is break the contract at the database level, but then go compensate in my mapping files. Mm. Right. And today that takes a redeployment of the mapping files, and that's uh, it's certainly not free, but it's typically cheaper than changing the code. I was wondering about uh, whether we should have the mapping files themselves living in the database in columns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. We we've been debating a lot about sort of what is the right way of of, of managing metadata, like you know, mapping files and and, and metadata descriptions. And uh, we are exploring the space. We're not uh, we don't have anything like right now. And the, the way we're shipping V1 is. We use metadata files that you can ship with the application or put them put them in some share you know metadata metadata like uh, file share or something like that. Uh, so yeah. it is thinkable to replace them on a on grand scale even today. But we don't have a management thing like putting them inside a database in a repository. Uh, that said, there is a number of groups at Microsoft that are exploring sort of building repositories for metadata, and uh, you know eventually I think we will. Uh, We'll go into that direction. I don't quite know what it means right now, but uh, yeah, there is enough pressure from our bigger customers in that space that uh, we'll certainly look into it. Yeah. So we've talked about Link as a language construct. We've talked about Link to SQL as a one-to-one mapping mm-hmm. entity framework as a way of mapping business objects to the underlying database. The other one in this equation is ADO.NET Data Services, or formerly Astoria. Yeah. And so, where does that one fit in? So, Astoria is uh, so the motivation for Astoria is actually fairly straightforward. Uh, if you look at all of the data technologies that we have today, all of them assume line of sight with the database. So, they are either client technologies for two-tier systems or middle-tier technologies for three-tier systems or multi-tier systems in general. So, there is a whole space that we were not tackling with that, which is, what if your client and your server are across the web from each other? And uh, it turns out that that is becoming more and more of a common scenario, either because you have like a rich internet application talking to your server, maybe you're using Silverlight, and uh, you have a server on the other end and you want a rich data interactive application, or maybe you have a full-on application like a Windows app and you want to talk to a service across the web. Or uh, what we're seeing even more uh, recently is many of many applications out there are becoming hybrids they're applications but they're also platforms you know you can see this ranging from you know from facebook to to flickr to any of these uh, to, to twitter all of these things are yeah. at the same time they're an application but they're also a platform for other for other people to to work against them or for yeah. other developers to work against them so what that means is that 
exchanging data across the web as a first-class construct without UI or anything else around it is becoming increasingly important. So Project Astoria basically has the goal to tackle on that space, explore the space and produce technology to make it easier for developers to build services that expose data to the web as an API for others to consume, and also to consume data from the web uh, in a way that is natural for, for the Microsoft technologies and the Microsoft environment in general. I suppose this is a little bit of a move because if if uh, people had asked for Microsoft guidance on this a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. the answer would have simply been web services. That would have been how an application should have talked to a service that was across the web somewhere else. So what's the move from web services and why why is this sort of interface a better interface? Um, I'm not sure it's a move. I, I, see, more, I see it more, more as a, like a broadening thing. Uh, I think mm-hmm. uh, so. Web services. We, we have a solid story. Like it's been maturing over time. And right now, if you look at the WCF stack, the Windows Communication Foundation stack, it's in really, really good shape. Um, I think what happened though is that we have a class of services that are in nature very operation oriented. And for those uh, traditional like SOAP-based web services, work great. However, there is this trend for another class of services coming out that are much more centered around the entities or the resources that they expose and not so much about the operations. In fact, they tend to have what we call a uniform interface, meaning what you have is uh, a bunch of resources or call it entities or whatever, and uh, they have semantics on their nouns, but then they have uniform actions you can take on any of them. You can create them or you know erase them or traverse yeah. across them and such. So, and... Um, you know, the, the so-called like REST interfaces or RESTful interfaces follow that pattern heavily. And uh, basically what that means is they are leveraging HTTP as a protocol as it was originally designed. And um, Actually, we should probably probably define or just mention REST because uh, okay. uh, many uh, of the DBAs might not have seen, come across that. So you can think of REST as – so REST stands for representational state transfer, and that's a fancy word, and there is a um, – a dissertation that describes it with details and such. But in yeah. principle, what it is, is it's a way of, it's a, the, the name Daycoin is an architectural style uh, for building applications that have certain characteristics. They are stateless applications. They are resource-oriented as opposite to sort of operations-oriented. Uh, and uh, they have an addressing scheme such that you can point to resources using resource identifiers, typically URLs or URIs. Um, yep. So the idea is that you have like you have this uh, a server serving resources and you can access those resources using, for example, HTTP as a state as the stateless protocol. And uh, what you can do is you can obtain a representation of that resource, and uh, you can also uh, uh, modify it or delete it or uh, maybe replace it um, using well-known operations. And uh, the idea is also that both the ends and the intermediaries of the system understand the common operations. So layering is possible, caching is possible, layered security is possible, and so on. And um, this has become, or is becoming increasingly interesting, first because uh, it is a very, very simple mechanism. There is very little uh, need for both background knowledge or know-how and also for uh, extensive tooling and software infrastructure to use it. And second, because it's been shown to scale uh, very naturally to the high-end needs of web, web-wide applications. Um, I think that's why it's becoming increasingly popular these days. Um, 
Yeah, I think in general you could look at it as you know simply use HTTP and don't push it. That's how I you know see it. In practice. <laughs> um, and uh, so all all Astoria does is it says look, uh, if you want to expose uh, your like uh, your data in in terms of a REST endpoint or a plain HTTP endpoint, what you do is you have to explain what the data looks like. So the way you explain it is you model using it, you model it using the EDM, the Entity Data Model, and what we will do is. Uh, like in the EDM, there are entities and associations. So we will turn the entities into resources and give every entity a URL, and we will turn associations into links. So effectively, what results of that is an endpoint that has a graph of all of your data linked using the links that are that become from the associations. And um, it effectively uh, means that now you have an, uh, like a flexible e interface to your data, where you don't have to predict all of the usage patterns or access paths. You can you can secure it in a sort of in a uh, general way, like in a policy style way. And uh, once it is, uh, you chose what what to surface. You don't need to say the details of how to access that data. So different uh, applica client applications can choose the right way of of accessing the data, like the right yeah. query paths and execution paths, and so on. Now this this fits very well with Silverlight and AJAX applications. Yes, absolutely. Like, if you look at what happens with those apps, uh, is um, typically, you know, data access happens on the server in web applications, and then you render some HTML out of it and send it to the client. But with Ajax and Silverlight, that's not quite the case anymore. Now, uh, the page with the, U the web page with the UI has been served, either a Silverlight DLL or a bunch of JavaScript or something. And now you're sitting on the client and you want to show the user data, and what do you get it from? So, with Astoria, you can just go back to your server and interact with the server in terms of pure data and show the data in the UI. Of course, you could do this before, and you can also do it with web services. And the trade-off here is mostly around um, do you want a fixed entry point in the, in the database that is maybe more structured, but then every time you want to tweak the interaction model, you have to go change the interface on the server, or do you want a more flexible data model, which uh, it's uh, usually easier to deal with and more flexible in how you interact with the service and how you version it, but it has the, the, also the challenge of it is more open-ended, which means you have to deal with a broader class of queries coming into your system. Yeah. The, the other terms that uh, they'll probably need to come to grips with here are uh, JSON versus XML. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so one of the things we try to do in Astoria is uh, we're trying to be a flexible mechanism to expose data to the web, and we're trying to not to dictate too much what you need to do about it or how you consume it or things like that. So one of the things we did is we have a flexible mechanism for representing entities. We don't dictate a single representation. We support a few, and we hope to introduce more as we get the needs from our customers. Uh, the yeah. two that we support right now is we support an uh, we support the, uh, an, a protocol called the APP or the Atom Publishing Protocol, which is an XML-based encoding for data. Uh, originally it was for feeds, but it's actually a very nice general purpose. Uh, protocol for, for representing mm -hmm. data that is linked to other data items and things like that. Uh, and we also support JSON, which stands for JavaScript Object Notation. And it's actually it's a very smart trick. Like uh, the people that created JSON, what they did is they took a subset of JavaScript that is strictly the object initialization syntax without procedural code in it. And uh, they used it to represent data. The nice thing about it is if you're running in a JavaScript environment, such as the browser, the web browser, uh, you, and you have a piece of data, you can just eval the data and you get an object out of it. Uh, so it's a very nice 
and straightforward way of getting to the general purpose deserialization that gets from the wire format into objects without writing any code. Um, yeah. So, you know, each one of them has its advantages, advantages and its issues, and uh, they are simply targeted to different scenarios. Yeah. Well, so that's a, a great summary of each of those three technologies. I suppose the final sort of question really is where are we at release-wise and things with all of these as to what's available, what's coming, what's coming roughly when? Um, so we are we shipped uh, CTPs in around December last time. Uh, they were getting close to done, but we're still doing some work, you know, around perf and what we call fit and finish, which is you know things that don't look great end to end. Uh, so just to make sure that they are looking great when we ship, um, we will probably do another iteration at some point this year, and like early this year, and then we're looking at shipping mid next year, uh, mid this year. Yeah, uh, and is, that's every, everything but Link, which is already shipped. Yes, Link already shipped. Link to SQL already shipped as well. And what we're looking at shipping uh, middle of this year is linked to entities and the whole entity framework, including the designer tools and all that, and also the yeah. ADO data services framework, with all of the pieces of Woodworth Project Astoria. Uh, so and we're on track. We're, things look good. Um, and uh, we'll be talking about it a lot in whenever we have a chance uh, to show you know, the latest advance, advancements, where we are at each point in time, and so on. Uh, in fact, uh, like what, one thing... What do you suggest... I was going to say, what do you suggest people do to get involved? Um, so a couple of things is go to the forums. Like First of all, download the bits and try them. There is always a CTP out there. And uh, go to the forums, add questions, and send us comments. The forums are very, very active. And uh, there is a lot of folks from our team uh, always reading them and such. There is also blogs. We have a couple of blogs. There is an ADO.net team blog that sits at blogs.msdn.com slash ADO.net. Uh, and there is also an Astoria team blog. It's actually more or less the same team, but uh, yeah. the technologies are enough to justify yeah. a different one, which is blogs.msdn.com slash Astoria team altogether. And mm -hmm. uh, go to the blogs. The blogs we, we try to share as much of what's going on as we can, but also we're happy to take questions and uh, suggested blog topics and things you want to know about. And uh, sort of we really want to stay engaged with the community, so go for it. Uh, yeah. We'll also... Like the next conference coming is uh, mixed 2008. So if you're thinking of going, we'll have uh, presence there. Uh, like I'll be there with a few of other folks here as well, and uh, we'll be talking about Astoria a lot. Mix is a web-oriented conference, so you know Astoria or data services, I guess, uh, it's going to be yep. one of the things we'll be pushing around a lot, along with other sort of things we're thinking about for the next round of innovations. So you may want to show up and sort of hear what we're yep. thinking for the future as well. In terms of places we'll see you or things later in the year, I presume TechEd uh, involvement there. Now, with that split into two weeks, I presume most of this will be more in the developer week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, I actually don't know yet if I'll be there, but, uh, of course, people from mm -hmm. the team will be there. Uh, in, yeah, in events that are coming is Mix Now, TechEd, Mid-Year, uh, uh, what else, this PC, uh, at some point. Like, I don't know the dates, but I'm sure they're, like, in yeah. the PDC website. Um, um, so those are sort of the big events. There is also Dev Connections, which is always there, and a few other yep. events that we try to be. Yeah, the to be at. past conference uh, is in April for uh, in Germany and in November for Seattle as well. Yep. And no doubt there'll be a link and entity content in that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we always have a presence there as well. So that's great. Uh, you can find us in all of these places, and it's usually it's easy to locate us.
Great. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time today, Pablo. Oh, and thanks to you. I hope to see you again sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Thank you. Bye.